Welcome to the next track. A podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. We self-produce the Next Track podcast and want to keep it ad-free, so we rely on contributions from listeners for support. You can help us by making a regular donation via Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash the next track. And thanks. For this episode, we're very happy to welcome the renowned pianist Marc-André Amelin. Marc, thank you for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Mark is in Boston, very close to where Doug is. In fact, mm-hmm. before we started recording, they were talking about their favorite coffee shops. I sit this one out because I'm a tea drinker. Mark, how are you doing in the lockdown? And so we've been interviewing a number of musicians in the past few weeks, and everyone seems frustrated, but you seem to have a big smile on your face there. Well, I mean, it's, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I rejoice in uh, being able to do something like this, you know, to be talking about what I do and, uh, and uh, possibly communicating with, uh, with uh, listeners. I mean, that's, uh, that's what it's all about, really. So I'm, I'm, I'm just very happy. What can I say? But don't you miss the whole performance? The um, undoubtedly, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's like a huge rug pulled from under your feet, you know. And uh, I mean, we won't talk about the financial aspects, you know, which. No. Uh, it's, I mean, for me and for uh, all of my colleagues, it's yeah. a it's a colossal loss. It, it's made worse for me personally because I don't really teach. Ah, uh, right. So I've really I've really dropped down to uh, to just about zero. So yeah, um, and record royalties are not very very large these days. They are better in my case because uh, Hyperion Records refuses, and I say refuses, to be on Spotify. Yes, they refuse streaming, and I've tried to get Simon Perry on the show to talk about that, but he never wants to. They're the last sort of mid-size independent label that doesn't do streaming, and it's an interesting economic experiment to see how long it's going to last like that. I totally respect it. I like how you say how long it's going to last because you know inevitably it's going to have to happen. Uh, who knows? I mean, I, I'm not a specialist and, and I'm, I wouldn't really uh, pretend to be able to predict uh, with the direction in which, it's, in which it's going to go, of course. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but there is a lot of momentum in that direction for pretty much everyone. Yeah. Well, sure. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's become the way of thinking for most uh, classical music listeners and uh, any music listener really for that matter uh the fact that hyperion can still do so well uh having it chosen steadfastly to remain in that direction to me is is really kind of miraculous and very commendable yeah but uh i think that it's uh, i i don't know i have to be realistic here and uh may think that maybe it's not going to last that much longer yeah, it's it's just the way things are trending. Hyperion is an interesting label, though, because it it's it's one of those labels that has a character that when you go to their website and you see what's new, you kind of expect the new releases. They fit into a certain style, a certain group of performers, but there's the continuity, like the romantic piano concertos that are up to like the three thousand five hundredth record so far. Or, or the long series like the Schubert Leader. And so there is, in, in other labels I can think of, the one that finally went to streaming about a year and a half ago was ECM, the jazz label. They had that same character. When you picked up an ECM record and put it on, you kind of knew what you were getting. Well, there was, there was a very, very definite, uh, there is a very definite aesthetic behind uh, ECM. There's no question. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that, that's been uh, one of the strengths of the label. I mean, they're, they're also their presentation. 
is extremely distinctive. But you can say that of Hyperion as well. Uh, they and uh, you know the company is forty years old this yeah. year, and they have built a tremendously loyal clientele yeah. over the years. And uh, to me, they're really the the, the best. Uh, classical independent label, you know, that around. Yeah. Another one that I think is similar is Harmonia Mundi. Again, they've got a style. They've got, they focus most on early music and Baroque, and, and they're not all over the place. But it's true that there are fewer and fewer record labels like that in classical. So you've recorded some 60 albums for Hyperion. What, what, what is it, Stakhanovist? Is that what we say for someone who is just constantly working nonstop? You don't seem old enough to have recorded 60 albums. Plus, you had a few with other labels before that. Yeah, so the, the total is actually uh, 81 right now. <laughs> and some of them are two discs or more. So how many do you record a year? Oh, well, it's, it's, it's very irregular, you know. Uh, it's not that easy to get studio time, you know, especially uh, the, the, the kinds of venues that Hyperion chooses to record in, which are really the best in the world. Uh, sometimes the waiting list is really quite long. I mean, yeah. I, I, for, for a while I did my um, – I recorded my CDs at Henry Wood Hall in London, which is uh, um, close to uh, London Bridge. And uh, – you have to book like a, I don't know a year and a half, maybe two years in advance. I'm not sure. I mean, I'm, I'm not the one who does the bookings, and Hyperion does. Yeah. Uh, uh, and the, the the thing with the Henry Wood Hall is that yes, it, it's it's a recording venue, but mainly it serves as a rehearsal venue for the London Philharmonic Orchestra and others as well. So um, uh, it's extremely hard to get a slot there. Yeah. So. Like many other musicians who are locked down um, with the coronavirus, you've been doing some streaming, and you did a wonderful concert um, for the 92nd Street Y, and it was actually quite a long, it was about an hour and 20 minutes long with a, let's see, CPE Bach, Inescu, Foray, Scriven, Liszt, and Debussy. Um, how did you enjoy that, performing without having the audience there to watch you to, to get that feedback? Well, you know, I'm I'm often asked, what do I prefer, you know, recording in a studio or playing in front of a live audience? And uh, I always say that my commitment to both is equal. But inevitably, when there is an audience present, uh, there is going to be an element of... Um, having the occasion be kind of an offering, like a more direct offering. I mean, I, I can see who I am uh, directing my uh, my artistic musical wishes to. Yeah. Uh, in the case of a studio se uh, session, I have to use my imagination a lot more. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, I was I was really thinking first and foremost of the virtual audience. Uh, and uh, that really kept me going uh, more than I expected, actually, because okay. it was it was it was really the first time that I was doing anything like this, and um, I have to say the experience was extremely positive. Do you plan to do any more? Uh, there will be uh, a concert at the Rockport uh, Music Festival um, on June twenty seventh. 
and that'll also be live streamed. And uh, in the hall will be me and the camera operator somewhere upstairs. That's it. No audience. Yeah. So no audience there either. No audience. So it's the music festival, but no festivities. No, none whatsoever. <laughs> like, but in a performance space, it's not your home. Exactly. And, so, and what a performance space it is. I mean, the the the, uh, the Shalin Lu Performance Center in Rockport, Massachusetts, is is uh, on the seaside. Ah, okay. Uh, the the back of the stage is a panoramic window uh, with a full view of the ocean, and it's absolutely glorious. It's a small hall, but but it it uh, the atmosphere is uh, indescribable. Okay. So Doug and I were talking beforehand. Oh, how did he mic himself for that home stream? The, the reason that I'm asking is because one of our regular guests, Andy Doe, came on, was it a week ago, mm-hmm. I think, and he was talking about what people should do if they're home streaming, how to set up a, a phone or a tablet or whatever. Yours is clearly, it looks to me like an iPhone. Did you have a separate mic or was it just the iPhone to record it? Well, actually, uh, you know that my wife, uh, whose name is uh, Kathy Fuller, is uh, um, a classical music uh, announcer at uh, WBRB, which is a WGBH station here in Boston. Right. So she's often had to do interviews, and she has a Zoom H4 recorder. Ah. And uh, we could have done it with an iPhone, of course. Uh, uh, some of my colleagues have done so. Yeah, for, the sound's not as good. Yeah, that's right. So, so the, the the Zoom really afforded us a better sound quality. And um, uh, uh, there's a, uh, we have a friend of ours who's a wonderful um, uh, audio engineer, Anton, Antonio Oliat Ross at WGBH or CRB, you know, who uh, put it all together for us. That's terrific. Okay. And, and also stitched the video together, and, he, and he, he did a marvelous job with this. Yeah, because a lot of musicians don't have the technical know-how to do that. So you were fortunate. And we were kind of winging it, you know, uh, my, and my wife also took care of the lighting, you know, and I have to say that it really, really gets Yes, nice. good point. Yeah, because if we hadn't paid any attention to it, you know, the result would have been a little murky. But you know, we were we were still winging it. You know, um, as a matter of fact, you know, Antonio called us um, when he listened to the result and he said, "Are you aware that there's a clock?" <laughs> so we hadn't realized that we had put the zoom about three feet away from a ticking clock. <laughs> yep, oh, I've done that so many times yeah. in the background. You hear this tick, tick. Take, and it'll, you can't oh. really filter it out. Nope. I, I am now reassured. I am now reassured. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's a common mistake. So out, out of all these recordings that you've made, a lot of them are, let's say, lesser known composers. And this seems to be your specialty. What, what you call the composer pianist. Pianists who were virtuosos, also composers. But also, I mean, when I look at the list, I have a pretty broad knowledge of classical music. But I couldn't cite anything by, I don't know... Okay, Catoire, never heard of Catoire, Alcan, Deco, there are lots of names. Are you doing this because the beaten path is so well beaten with Beethoven and Mozart? And yes, you've recorded some Mozart, you've recorded some Schubert, but you seem to specialize in doing things a little bit differently. I've just always been very curious. Uh, from almost from the very beginning, I mean, as soon as I had a chance and a little pocket money to explore other things, I I did, and I never asked for for, for permission. I mean, some people might say that I I, uh, I might have uh, been playing in the sandbox before doing my homework. You know, <laughs> that is, you know, discovering the unknowns before 
really uh, um, sticking to the uh, really uh, delving into the core literature. But I did do that because uh, my uh, pianistic education, you know, at, at school was entirely centered around the core repertoire. Yeah, and also uh, the fact that my father was a good amateur pianist and uh, mostly. Uh, his education was also mostly centered around uh, core repertoire, especially the Romantic period. Um, I was familiar with that anyway, so I, uh, I guess um, deep down, I felt like I could, I had the right, at least partially the right, to explore this unknown stuff. And uh, it's been, of course, there's a lot of duds, a lot of junk. Uh, a lot of things that are deservedly, you know, obscure, but um, uh, there's also uh, the uh, occasional gem, and uh, that's what I love to discover. Dis- discovering C.P. Bach on my own a few years ago was uh, like uh, just an amazing thing for me, um, and uh, the music of Catoir, that uh, Georges Catoir, who was actually a Russian composer of uh, French descent, was also uh, quite a revelation because uh, he, he's a, uh, he wrote some wonderful miniatures, uh, not even performed in Russia. I, I was the first uh, uh, in 1998 to record anything for solo piano of his, not even in Russia. Had anybody turned their attention? Oistrakh had recorded all of his violin pieces, an elegy and then two violin sonatas. But otherwise, the piano uh, pieces remained completely unperformed. It didn't help that it, it didn't help that the music wasn't available. But that's that's another yeah. Yeah. I, I was able to do it simply because uh, I inherited a collection of old music, and and the ah. almost uh, almost his complete works fell into my lap all at once. So uh, okay. I sight sight read, and I become I became enchanted. What was the opinion of his contemporaries of his piano work? I mean, um, or of his violin work? Because you say that was recorded. Was there just have a bad rep at the time? Well, I, I think Tchaikovsky uh, gave him some early encouragement, but uh, on the whole, I'm not really aware of, of very much. And Catois now is mostly remembered as a composition and theory teacher at the Moscow Conservatory. I mean, his, his uh, picture is still there on the wall. But otherwise, you know, there have not been any... There were never, I think, any reprints of his uh, of his music. So there are a few of your recordings that are among my favorite piano recordings, and they're not the most obvious ones. And I would love to talk about the Ives Concord Sonata for hours with you. When I discovered Ives, so this is you know we've been doing these things with musicians the past few weeks, and it turns out that every time there's like I can tell a story of when I was in my late teens and my early twenties and I discovered something that stuck with me. We just released an episode with Ian Bostridge today, and Winterreis is something I discovered, you know, when I was around twenty years old. And another one is Charles Ives. The way this happened, I think it was 1981. Michael Tilson Thomas was doing a documentary on Carl Ruggles. And I was at home one evening and stumbled on it on Channel 13, the, the public television channel in New York. And he had just released a 2LP complete music of Carl Ruggles, but I couldn't find that the next day in Sam Goody. So I got a recording that he had done of Sun Treader by Ruggles and Ives' Three Place in New England. On DG. On DG, yes. One and of my favorite records. It, it's extraordinary. It just blew my mind. And I think Sun Treader is an immensely wonderful work, and it's never performed. Well, it's 
it's big, it's brash, it's harsh, and, and it's not that. I mean, if if you take a symphony of of, it's it's almost like I'm trying to think well, who's the Swedish composer Peterson who writes these really dark symphonies that that are recorded on Bis Records. It's like that. It's just so powerful. That got me into this complex music of Ruggles and Ives and that style of music. And the other thing that got me to buy a first recording of the Concord Sonata, early 1990s, was my long-time interest in the Transcendentalists. And I happened to find the essay that he had written on the internet, Essay Before Sonata, I think it's called, where he's describing it in like 150 pages. And I just... Something about this work just just plugged into me. As as complex and complicated as it is, there's something immensely human about it. Yeah, it doesn't always make sense. I mean, if you try to analyze it uh, on a pure, purely theoretical standpoint, uh, you 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 are bound to get a little lost because uh, it, it, so much of it was instinctive, but it uh, it it just all works somehow. Uh, you might be interested to know on the subject of recordings that the very first record I bought from myself. On June 10th, 1975, so I was 13, was the second Kirkpatrick recording of the Concord Sonata. Yeah. By the way, it took me 30 years. It took me until uh, 30 years of playing the piece until I got here uh, in Massachusetts to learn that it's actually Concord and not Concord. <laughs> yeah, we'd say Concord. Concord. So I, I yeah. referred it for, to it for 30 years. It was a Concord Sonata, but it's Concord, actually. <laughs> yeah. Apparently, you're the only person who's, re- you're one of two people who've recorded it twice, along with Kirkpatrick. You're you are very, very well informed. It's like, and do you know how many recordings there are? There are dozens. I, I have a dozen myself. I, I counted uh, 47. Yeah. It, it's surprising that something so difficult both to perform and to listen to has been recorded so much. Yeah. So, some of these recordings never made it to CD, uh, incidentally. It, interestingly, when your Hyperion record came out, I think it was just after Pierre Laurent Mar released his recording, and he has been performing this very recently in London, paired with Beethoven's Hammerklavier Sonata. And, and when I read that, I'm thinking, my God, I would just be exhausted even just listening to the two of those together. Yeah, I guess you have to think of the listener, you know, but uh, it, it's the kind of concert in which you, uh, it's a kind of, it's, it's an event and you have to, to really come prepared for that kind of thing. Yeah. But uh, there is a, there is an audience for it. Uh, I, I think Charles Rosen used to do the Hammerklavier and the Diabellis. Yeah. Well, but that, the Diabellis lighter music in some ways. In some ways. <laughs> yeah. So do, do you perform the Ives a lot? Is it something that's demanded by the audience or is the sort of subscription audience to concerts not really brave enough for that sort of music? Uh, no, it, it's it's largely been successful whenever I've played it. I, I, I haven't played it that actively, but uh, I'm always uh, ready to whip it back up into shape uh, because I, I, I've always believed in it. And it, to, to me, the whole thing is like reciting a, a long poem. Yeah. Or maybe, uh, maybe a series of four poems in this case. Yeah. Uh, but uh, it's something that's been part, a part of me for, uh, gosh over 40 years now yeah. so um um i've been thinking actually i've been threatening uh to include it in the season program uh um, in the future and uh, i may very well do that and that wouldn't be the only thing in 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 a recital what would you pair it with it's kind of difficult isn't it options are totally open here yeah i mean your recording on hyperion has the barber sonata play it twice in a row <laughs> <laughs> that's not a bad idea 
when, when something like that is presented in a concert, and it's really rather difficult to listen to for a lot of people, I, I yeah. like to may, maybe do that in the first half and then reward listeners with something that is that is a little easier for the second half. Some Haydn. Well, I mean, any anything that's perhaps more constant. Yeah, which just as a quick mention, I think your Haydn recordings are wonderful. I really like Glenn Gould's limited Haydn recordings, and, and yours reminds me of him without the humming and the idiosyncrasies. So another recording of yours that I really love is the Frederick Zhevsky, The People United Will Never Be Defeated, a series of 36 variations on a Chilean protest song, which sounds a bit strange the, the the song itself is quite simple you can imagine phil oaks singing it and i it's it's really actually quite well known well it's probably better known than some other modern pieces but it is a strange concept isn't it all these variations that start relatively simple and then they get extremely complex it's not there's a little bit of chromaticism atonality but it's not an atonal piece but what really impressed me when I was listening to it is the speed at which you play some of those variations. Mm, well, I mean, it, it's it's really not the central point, of course, you know. But uh, I, I I simply tried to uh, um, uh, convey, you know, what what Jevsky was uh, was really asking for, and in some places, it has to sound extremely urgent and uh, and agitated, and uh, and that's uh, what I hope came across. And in others, it's relatively laid-back melodic. It doesn't sound like a 20th century piece was written, what, in the mid-70s, correct? 75, yeah. It, it doesn't sound like what we expect from the 20th century with all sorts of serialist, atonal things. I know that we'll get into another piece later that's far from that as well. But it's true that when concert audiences who aren't very versed in contemporary music or 20th century music, when they see these things on the program, they must be a bit hesitant. Oh sure. Well, I mean, it's it goes a little farther than that. I mean, even uh, composers uh, who write tonally, but who are not well known or uh, known to the public, I mean, people feel apprehensive about. Um, it is always uh, a challenge. Sometimes a bit of a challenge. Sometimes an enormous challenge, depending. Uh, to present something that's never been heard, however accessible it might be, because people are basically afraid of the unknown. Some people, I would say. I mean, uh, there is a good segment of the population who is open to exploration, and that's uh, that's a blessing, of course. Uh, you, you, just have, you just have to try to satisfy both audiences. On your recording, this is 73 minutes, so that's almost an entire program, isn't it? I suppose so, but uh, the main meat, of course, of the CD is the the People United variations. I added two other pieces of his simply because I really like them very much. And, oh, and that's they, right. They sort of they sort of, they sort of act as fillers. Right. I was looking at the total duration of the CD, so it's actually about fifteen minutes for those other two pieces. But but still, it's a, it's an hour long piece of music. Just about yeah. Dep- depending on how how long the improvisation, the optional improvisation is, you know, because if you you can of course get carried away and just keep on playing playing if you feel so inclined and if you can, yeah. Uh, but um, if you play it without the uh, improvisation, it's something like forty eight fifty minutes, I think. Do you perform it often? I haven't performed it in recent years, although I have included it in uh, my program for next season actually this coming season um actually uh it is uh i put it in the second half however i offered an alternate second half 
uh, for venues who uh, are not really ready for that kind of thing. Yeah. And, and what would you do in the first half? Um, something romantic, something early 20th century. What would be a counterpoint? A Beethoven sonata? You know, the there's Diabelli so variations. No, 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 no. No, it, it was it was a uh, it was a mixed program. I, I I I have to confess, I don't remember exactly. I haven't been thinking about this this past week. I understand. Yes, yeah. yeah. But I I know that it starts with the the Mozart Sonata K two eighty two, you know, which uh, it's a wonderful one in E flat major, which starts with a slow movement, yeah. which is very very uncommon in them in Mozart's output. Yeah. So the third one, and I guess. It's hard to pick a favorite among all your recordings. In particular, these three that I've selected are all 20th century recordings, is the Feldman for Benita Marcus. Yes. there's. Uh, I didn't discover Morton Feldman when I lived in New York. I only discovered him a couple decades after I left. And it's a shame. And, and on this podcast, I've talked about how I wish I knew someone who was into jazz when I lived in New York. I could have heard Bill Evans in 1980 at the Village Vanguard. And while I did hear Steve Reich and, and Philip Glass live, I did not know of Feldman. And it's just been such a wonderful discovery in the last 10 years or so since I've been listening to his music. And Forbunita Marcus is just an extraordinary piece. And this gets over 70 minutes, correct? Yes. About 72, I think, yeah. About, depending on your tempo. But uh, there, is, there is actually an indicated metronome market, which I've tried to adhere to. And there is also, what, what do you call the, the mark of loudness? The dynamics. The dynamics mark. Yes. There's also a dynamics mark. Is it PPP? Yes, it's extra, so extremely soft. I mean, he, he wanted everything, he, uh, almost everything he ever wrote, extremely soft. Uh, as a matter of fact, in a couple of instances, at least, you know, he listened to performances, uh, rehearsals of of his pieces. You know, he, he was present at rehearsals, and uh, he was saying uh, his comment at the end was, "It's too loud and too fast." <laughs> and there and there were expli- expletives in each. Yes, <laughs> on I, both words. I can know? imagine. <laughs> I, I've heard conversations with between him and John Cage, and while Cage oh, yeah. while Cage was this very restrained laid-back guy. Morty could be... Buddhist right. Himself. Morty could yes. be really out there in your face. So I hear, yes. yes. Well, you can hear on recordings, but he's got the true New York in him, or he had the true New York in him. I, I never met him, but I know several people who knew him very, very well. Yeah. It, it is kind of odd. So, looking at these three pieces from the 20th century that I selected, the Ives, which is everywhere, the Zhevsky, which is variations and then the feldman which is this sort of i mean i don't play i can't read the score to know where it goes but when i listen to it it sounds like you're entering into a continuum and you leave it at the end and you're not sure where you've been going the whole time i mean these are three 20th century pieces with such different styles to them and and i I think a lot of people who don't know classical music just think of 20th century music as you know, atonal music, and th- there's such a wide variety there. Oh, yes. Well, Feldman is in uh, a, a, a category of his own, I think. You know, and when when you listen to these things, I mean, there are so many dimensions in there, and so many ways of listening to it, and so many ways of understanding it. And uh, you have to really ask yourself at the end of this piece, you know, why? Not only how, but why? 
what prompted this piece? I mean, uh, uh, Feldman wrote a little bit about it, or at least discussed it in interviews, uh, not extensively, but he did say that, and I'm here I'm getting a little technical, and he was obsessed with a rhythmic pattern of, and I will say the numbers, 3-8, 5-16, 3-8, and 2-2. Two, two. So there are varying measure lengths. And uh, it's not a uh, regularly recurring thing because there are variations. Sometimes um, the the 2-2 two, two measure is one note. Sometimes it's a rest. And sometimes the order of these bars is shuffled around. So, of course, the rhythmic aspect. Uh, if nothing else, in my recording, I tried to be as rhythmically accurate as possible. Because it's very easy uh, when performing something like this to, to do a little bit of rubato, you know, a little, little give and take in the, in the pulse rate, which really, which really in many recordings, I think, destroys Feldman's stated intention. So if nothing else, my recording is accurate rhythmically. So Feldman's music needs to be played more like Bach, more with a stricter respect to the rhythm. Uh, yes, yes, because I, I think he uh, considered it very, very important. And, and there, there are other pieces of his which are rhythmically extremely complex. Yeah. Uh, th- this piece is not technically complex in terms of the notes you're playing, correct? It's more the rhythm and, and keeping track of that over, what, about an hour and 15 minutes? Yeah, and also uh, in matters of sonority, it's really uh, not easy because, especially if you're dealing with with an instrument that doesn't really give you naturally this pianissimo uh, uh, dynamic range that uh, that Feldman really asks for, that I think is essential. Uh, so, 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 so to, to 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 control the sound, you know, is it, it demands a certain kind of virtuosity. Because also, if you're in a concert hall, the the pianissimo to you is going to be very different to the people in the back. Well, it depends on the size of the hall, really. Well, you can't play it in a big hall, could you? I can conceive of it. You you you, uh, you just then alter your parameters uh, so that you are sure that the um, uh, the softed sounds will reach the back row, as any actor would, for example. Right. So then, ideally for you, the best place to sit in the venue would be in the back row, because then you'd get closest to. Feldman's idea of softness. That's a good thought, actually. You're right. Yeah, it, it sounds quite complicated because usually, as a listener, you want to be near the front, in the center. I personally, I like being, we go to Symphony Hall and Town Hall in Birmingham, and I like being in the boxes on the side by the stage because you don't need to be in the center of a performance of live music like you do between two speakers in a stereo. And I like that view over the stage that you get slightly looking down on the musicians. But sometimes sitting all the way in the back, you can kind of forget that it's a performance. You can close your eyes and just let the music envelop you in a different way, I find. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, it, 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 it all depends on the hall that you're in. You know, it, it's, uh, it's a shame, uh, but um, an accepted fact that, that, that some halls which were designed by stellar acousticians have been failures. I mean, there are not too many of them, really, because uh, there's a lot of wonderful halls in the world. Could you play that on clavichord? <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, that's like the ultimate soft keyboard instrument. <laughs> really? Why has no one thought of playing Feldman on clavichord? 
Well, the uh, you may you may not have the range because a clavichord is yeah. usually what just four octaves, four and a half octaves. That's what I was going to say. I mean, you wouldn't have the range, and 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 Feldman does use uh, more than that, really. Um, but also, um, I I think that uh, his thinking was really pianistic enough that no other instrument would do. Right. So he's thinking of the decay in the notes on a real piano. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, something else that you haven't mentioned is that, uh, except for two very momentary pedal lifts, the right pedal, the damper pedal, is held all the way through. Right. And that's something that, as not being a pianist, I, it's mentioned in the liner notes for the recording, but it's not something that I would notice while listening. Mm-hmm. Particularly if it's held almost all the time, I would think that's just the way the piano sounds. Yeah. There's another piece of his uh, his longest piano piece, actually, called Triadic Memories, which which is about, an, I don't know, an hour and a quarter to an hour and a half or maybe more, uh, because it's not clear what tempo he wants. Uh, the entire work, it's one half pedal held through the whole time. When you say half pedal, do you mean the pedal held down halfway? Yes, yes, which only... Um, uh, holds some of the sounds, so so the, so the sustaining ability is uh, is uh, selective and limited. Um, that I think is it would be more noticeable to the ear. I mean, I'm not a connoisseur of uh, the many recordings of this piece actually that are around, so I can't I can't talk whether uh, about whether pianists have been successful or have even uh, observed the marking, but it is there and it has to be. So if the pedal's half down for the whole piece, can't you just block it with something? <laughs> I suppose Would that so, be but, cheating but, because because having to hold your foot halfway for an hour and a half that seems a bit you'd end up getting cramps, wouldn't you? Yeah, but the thing is, uh, you can't do it mechanically because uh, your foot is always responding to uh, the acoustical result, uh, what is happening acoustically. Yeah. So if you okay. need to adjust, I mean, you will inevitably need to adjust. Yeah. Um. Although in the case of Forbinina Marcus, in which the pedal is, is, it's a full pedal all the way through, then there's no question, because that's what he wants. Right. But I right. think that half-pedaling, uh, first of all, uh, uh, half-pedaling will never yield the same result uh, from one piano to another. So uh, I think that uh, having having uh, putting a wedge there or something like that to hold it to one position is not really a solution. So I saw a review of you playing the Ives... A few years ago, maybe in London, and you don't use a score when you play that, correct? No. Do you use scores for these other pieces we're talking about? The Feldman? Could you play that without a score? I think the Feldman is unmemorizable. Yeah. Because, because of the difference uh, in rhythm. You are, uh, for 72 minutes, basically, you are frantically, even though it doesn't sound like right, you're frantically counting. Is Is it that. Again, I don't know the instrument. Is it that you're thinking in your head one, two, three, four as you go on? It really like that. Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll tell you exactly. You know that, that group of four bars, that that rhythmic cell, which I uh, I said was the uh, at the basis of the whole thing. It's three eight five sixteen three eight and two two. So you're thinking one two three one two three four five one two three one two three four five six seven and that's constant okay that 
That's that four-bar unit. That sounds very difficult to maintain that. Well, when you're looking at the score and and have it always yeah. under your eyes, then it's much easier. You have the reminder each time it changes. Yeah. And, of course, uh, if you are performing with the score uh, so that the audience can get into it, the, the live audience can get into it, because I've done it in concert, uh, you have to make them completely forget that you're following a score. Yeah. Do, do you use paper scores or do you use an iPad? Yeah, what I do in this instance, uh, there's 36 pages to the score, and I uh, photocopied them on a heavy cardstock so that they don't fly away. And I, I uh, lay them on the music rack and stagger them so that I can easily grab just one and just one and slide it to the left when, whenever I'm finished. And um, the, uh, the piano writing is such that very often what's on the page... I can play with one hand and then turn with the other. And there's that few notes that I can do that. All, all the things that we don't understand as spectators and listeners that go into playing a piece like that. Mm-hmm. That's right. But you, but you don't have to know. And that's the no, exactly. We, we have to get the music at the end. We don't need to know how the sausage is made. Yeah. Um, in fact, I find it a little bit disappointing that people, people in quotes, seem to think that we need to have everything explained to us that we need to be educated to appreciate music and art and and other, you know, that we need to see the making of, of the film, that, that sort of thing. I, I sometimes want, I just want the work, and, and I don't want someone telling me how to think about it. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, it's, it's, a, it, it's a difficult question. I mean, I can understand the, the intimidation, because I, I was talking once with the, uh, the director of the Canadian Music Centre, there, there had been a concert of contemporary music, contemporary Canadian music, and uh, she had asked uh, a couple of people who were there, and so, did you like it? Said, well, you know, we don't know it, so we don't want to say, you know, but did you like it? Did you like, well, we don't know much about it, so we can't comment. But And I told her, you know, I, I can understand them to a certain extent, because it's a little bit like, like appreciating wine. Uh, some, uh, I mean, if you like a wine, you are not going to be bold enough, maybe, to tell people that you liked it because it might be junk. You know, it might be considered junk in 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 the in the in the, yeah. in the field. You know. Yeah. So so it's the apprehension of being seen as the philistine, whereas you people just can't let their own opinion come forward. Okay, Marc Andre Amelin, thank you very much for this wonderful discussion. I wish you all the best in the lockdown. Well, thank you very much, and uh, same to you. We would like to keep the next track ad-free, and in order to do that, we need your help, and you can give us your help by visiting our Patreon page. It's at patreon.com slash the next track, all one word. It is now time for our next track picks. Kirk, what have you got this week? For my next track this week, I'm going to pick another work by Morton Feldman. This is one of his longest works. In fact, it's his second longest work. His longest work is his second string quartet, which is about six hours long. This piece is called For Philip Guston. In 1984, Feldman composed this long work for flutes, tuned percussion, and piano and celesta. It's a trio. Presumably the flautist is playing different flutes, and the keyboard player is playing piano and celesta alternately. 
The Celesta looks like a piano, but it has metal bars in it. So when you can hear it in this piece, it sounds like bells ringing. It sounds like those bells that percussionists in an orchestra hit with a hammer sometimes, almost like church bells, but at a smaller scale. Like a lot of Feldman's later works, like for Benito Marcus, this is slow and methodical and... There's not much going on. It starts with a simple four-note motif, C, G, A flat, E flat, which is an anagram of Cage for John Cage, who introduced Gustin to Feldman. And it progresses often through these very slow arpeggios. One, two, three, or one, two, three, four. Like much of Feldman's later work, in particular his work with small ensembles like this, a lot of it seems to me to be about tone colors, about setting an atmosphere, about not necessarily going any place, but staying in one place and just saying things differently. In some ways, the structure is similar to For Benito Marcus with these little melodic fragments that continue. Four and a half hours, originally on four CDs, available on the streaming services, so there'll be a link to this on Apple Music. It's almost the kind of music to put on in the background, to appreciate subtly like ambient music, like a lot of Feldman, but the kind of music that you can focus on and pay attention to from time to time to really get into the subtlety of this music. Doug, what have you got? Well, if you're looking for something uh, to listen to in self-isolation that will ensure that none of your friends approach you and you can maintain your self-isolation, I heartily recommend the Rolling Stones songbook by the Andrew Oldham Orchestra. Now, Andrew Oldham, of course, is Andrew Lug Oldham, who was the manager of the Rolling Stones. This record came out in 1966, and what it is is, uh, I'm hesitant to say schmaltzy versions of of Rolling Stones songs that had been recorded up to the time, because they're not that schmaltzy. They're kind of, uh, well, they have an orchestra in them sometimes, and sometimes they have a, you know, sort of like a jazz drummer sort of thing going on, but... They do these really peculiar arrangements of songs like uh, Time is on My Side and Heart of Stone and Play with Fire. But the very, very, very interesting thing about this album is that the arrangement of The Last Time, which is actually really strange, you would never even guess that it's The Last Time, which is quite a peppy song. This particular song was where the verve lifted that orchestral riff that runs through uh, their song, Bittersweet Symphony. You know, there's this riff that just runs all the way through the song. Well, it comes from this arrangement of the last time, which is one of the most unusual things I've ever heard in my life. But anyway, uh, I stumbled on this the other day. I'd forgotten about the last time verve connection, and I'm going to give it a listen because it's just pretty strange stuff. The Rolling Stones Songbook by the Andrew Oldham Orchestra is my next track. This was episode number 179 of The Next Track. You can start or join a conversation in the comments of this episode's show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. You can follow us on Twitter at NextTrackCast. And don't forget, you can support The Next Track by making regular donations via Patreon. We're ad-free and self-sustaining, so your support is what keeps us going. Visit patreon.com slash thenexttrack. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.